Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. Uh, we, I have been given the, uh, the privilege of uh, getting you guys excited today about church planting, given your theme here this weekend, uh, this missions, this international missions weekend. I'll, I'll be speaking about missions, not necessarily from the international angle, but from the domestic angle, the local angle. Uh, just to, to kind of set this up for you, church planting uh, occurs or happens when members of the body of Christ enter into a certain place, a city that is in need of the gospel, preach the gospel there, and then gather the new believers that arise into a community together where they are there, uh, therefore discipled and raised up in Christ, and leaders are raised up, and then they go out and they continue God's mission in that particular place. And so I want to begin today, just, let's, just to keep us on track, just so you can know where I am, first of all, by defining church planning, which I just did, and then just to help you track both the title of this sermon and the goal of this sermon are the very same. We just want to answer the question today, why do we... And you can fill in we however you want. Why do we as a church, as a denomination, as individuals, plant churches? That's the question. Why do we plant churches? In Sovereign Grace Churches, we subscribe to seven uh, shared values, the sixth of which states that as a family of churches that we are committed to church planting, to outreach, and to mission. As a denomination, we believe that church planting is one of God's primary means of fulfilling the Great Commission, if not the primary means of fulfilling the Great Commission. So that there will be long-term, effective discipleship happening all over the world. Uh, Tim Keller, that famous church planter that we hopefully have read some of, says the continual planting of new congregations is the most crucial strategy for the growth of the body of Christ. My hope today is to answer why. Why is church planting God's most strategic, uh, crucial strategy to bring the gospel to bear on a particular culture to the end that believers would be born and raised up and disciples would be made so that in turn, Jesus receives the prize for which he died, which is the church. I've prayed about this weekend a lot, this past couple of weeks, and my prayer has been that through this missions weekend that God would raise up and stir up members of Kingsway Community Church to get involved in missions, particularly the work of church planning. That, that's near and dear to my heart. You know, I just may be crazy, but maybe I just have faith that there are people here that God wants to raise up, missionaries, that God wants to raise up in this congregation to go out into the work of church planting somewhere, somewhere in this world. So to answer our question, we're going to look at the book of Acts, and we're going to uh, look at, you know, the book of Acts is a record of the earliest Christian churches, the movement, the expansion of the gospel of Jesus in the world. But in particular, we're going to look at the first predominantly non-Jewish church that was planted. It's the church at Antioch that sits right at the gates of Asia, uh, the church that sent out so many effective workers into the world. We won't have the privilege of looking at those stories today. We're just going to look at the planting of this particular church. So read with me 
uh, verses 19 through 30. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined every one according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray. Lord, now as we turn to your most holy word, this narrative that describes the planting of the first church in Antioch, outside of Judea, outside of Samaria, Lord, I'm asking By your Holy Spirit, would you come into this room? Would you fill every one of us here? Would you open our ears? Would you open our eyes? And would you give us a passion for your glory in this world, particularly and specifically through missions work? I pray that it would be done, Lord Jesus. And I trust that you have already been working. And so I commit this time to you. It is in your name that I pray, amen. So let's take a moment to uh, zoom in on this city in Syria called Antioch. Antioch was positioned some 300 or so miles north of Jerusalem, about 20 miles east of the Mediterranean uh, Ocean or sea on the Orontes River. Now, this was a very large city in the first century. It was the third largest city in the world of that time behind Rome and Alexandria. Uh, Historians uh, uh, guess that the population there was somewhere between 300 and 600,000. That was a very large city for the first century. Uh, And this city was a melting pot. Uh, It was a melting pot of Greek and Roman and Jewish and Arab and Persian and Egyptian and Indian culture that all sort of just converged on this city. There was a sizable Jewish population there. Probably about a seventh of the population was Jewish. You can imagine, though, the options that one had in entertainment and art and technology and religion. In fact, among the many gods that were worshipped there in Antioch, Antioch was home to the temple of Daphne, who was a love goddess, 
The men of the city that lived there would go out to the myrtle groves where the temple was and engage in uh, uh, sexual acts with the prostitutes or ritual prostitutes that were there. Of Antioch, commentator Daryl Box says that it was a city full of religious activity and presence. Antioch was a cosmopolitan city full of gods where Judaism functioned as an exception in clinging to the one true God. In this context, folks, the church in Antioch emerged and reached out into the larger world with its own mission. And there in Antioch, God planted a church through the mouths and work and hands of some evangelists from Jerusalem. In this church, we see, folks, a community of disciples living counterculturally in a pluralistic society. These disciples in Antioch are on mission there, making a difference in this city. And it's for this reason, I think, that the church of Antioch becomes sort of an apologetic for church planting, a defense for church planting. So why do we plant churches? Why is sovereign grace invested in the work of church planting? Why should Kingsway get behind the work of church planting? Why are we going to Wilmington to plant a church? Well, this text, I think, provides us with at least one answer to that question, and here's the answer. We plant churches because God is on mission in the world through his church to strengthen the body of Christ and to transform local communities. I'll say it one more time. We plant churches because God is on mission through his church in the world to strengthen the body of Christ and to transform local communities. And so we'll spend our time kind of breaking this answer down. I'll divide it into three sections because that's what preachers do. They have three points. And to just make it a little easier to to digest, uh, hopefully. So here's the first part of the answer. We plant churches first and foremost because God is on mission through his church. Now, Matthew began preaching my sermon in before he called us up. And so you'll hear some familiar words, but that just means that we're on the same page and the Holy Spirit's at work. Uh, Verse 19 to 21 in your text there highlight a key moment in the book of Acts. This is the point, friends, in the larger story of the gospel, the, 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 the book of Acts, where the gospel begins to spread beyond predominantly Jewish cities. You remember way back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus called his disciples, he charged them, He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. But he said, you're going to go from Jerusalem to to Judea to Samaria, and what did he say last? To the ends of the earth. That's coming to pass here. In just a few chapters, James, the brother of Jesus, will quote the prophet Amos. He says that's being fulfilled. He says, God says, I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. God is at work in the world right now, dear friends, to bring his lost sons and daughters from among all kinds of people that he has chosen to save together. He's at work today. That's why we evangelize our neighbors, because God is at work. That's why we plant churches, because God is at work. That's why we support missions, because God is at work in the world. 
Amen. Now, what's significant, I think, about this text is how Luke describes, Luke the author describes the means or the agency through which God accomplishes this great mission work. No believer in Jesus can deny that God's working in the world. I mean, you look in your churches, you look at what God is doing in the church. He's at work. You, you have conversations with neighbors and family members and coworkers, and you see their eyes coming alive and open. God is at work. But how is the means that we sometimes miss, or through whom? This text says that a specific group of people went into Antioch, and they began speaking the word of God to both Jews and Gentiles alike. And Luke tells us in verse 19 that those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen were the people that were doing this gospel preaching. Now you can read about Stephen in a couple of chapters back in chapters 6 and 7. Stephen was the very first martyr stoned for his faith in Jesus Christ by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And at his death, a man named Saul, the Pharisee, was there. And after he, this Stephen died, he took the opportunity to begin to heavily persecute the church in Jerusalem. And so he'd go to houses and he would drag Christians or believers in Jesus off to prison. And chapter 8 says that these believers were scattered and they moved out of Jerusalem for the first time, and they moved into Palestine and beyond. Isn't it amazing how God sends out his people? The very first church planters were sent out through persecution. We have it so good here in America. Seven or eight years later, verses 19 to 20, some of these church members arrive in this cosmopolitan pocket in Antioch. Luke tells us that some of them are native Israelites, while others of them are Greek-speaking Jews from other countries. Verse 20 tells us that. What's the point? The point is that these men, and presumably women, came up out of Jerusalem because of persecution and were scattered and finally settled and landed in Antioch some years later. And these saints went about speaking the word, preaching the Lord Jesus. And verse 21 says that the hand of the Lord was with them and the Lord added a great number to their number. See, what, you, what we have to understand as we read the Bible, as we read the book of Acts, folks, you're not going to read Acts and find a story where believers are saved and then remain alone by themselves. Wherever believers are born, new believers are born, they're gathering together in community as the body of Christ wherever they find themselves. But you see, where they are together, that is where the power is. That is where God breathes on the work because it's here that we see God breathing on their work and God changing lives because the beauty of the gospel is on display through them. God is at work in the world, but it is through the local expression of his body that he accomplishes work, this work in specific places. We heard last night from the Bakers and the Wendell Myers. I was so moved by both of their stories, but I, I left thinking about the Wendell Myers, and they were talking about how they're just by themselves out there for so long, 
And that God in his kindness has sent the Englands, another, another family, I forget their name, to join them out there. And how refreshing it was when the body of Christ could come together. Folks, there's a church that's out there now. Why? Believers are together in Isan, Thailand. There's a church out there now. And God is going to breathe upon their efforts And people in Thailand will come and learn and meet the Savior. And people will be saved because there is a church in Isan, Thailand. It was through this band of disciples in the book of Acts that Jesus built his church in Antioch and made more disciples through them. It was through this local body that Jesus brought the gospel to bear on this surrounding community. And it's through this church that God will one day send out more church planters into the world and the whole world will be rocked because of this small band of believers that the Lord has breathed upon. Why? Folks, because the local church is God's catalyst for mission in the world. To say it a little more academically, God intends for our ecclesiology to drive our missiology. He wants ecclesiology to drive missiology. Now, I don't want to step on any toes here, but folks, Jesus did not die to save parachurch missions organizations. Now, listen, there's a place for them. Don't get mad at me. There's a place for them. Praise God for groups like Pioneers that are helping the Wendell Myers. God uses those kind of groups. But listen, the church is the object of Christ's affection. The church is the body that Jesus died for. In the book of Acts, it's the church that God gave his Holy Spirit to at Pentecost. It's the church that Jesus sends into communities with the gospel. And it's the church that God breathes upon so that missionary efforts will be made a success in the world. Friends, if this is true, and I believe that this story in the book of Acts confirms it, then every church that loves Jesus and that loves his mission and that loves his gospel ought to be involved in the work of church planting. Somehow, some way. Folks, we plant churches because there are cities all across America that don't have a faithful gospel witness. And there are faithful churches in those cities, but listen, the established church that's there can't do it all. They're not meant to do it all. But but God is working through the local church to start a gospel witness in our cities, in Richmond, in Charlotte, in Wilmington. Derek Thomas, the commentator, says that the task before us is as urgent and as necessary as it was in the time of the apostles. A dying world is moving at breakneck speed to a lost eternity, and we have in our grasp the solution to their plight. God could save without our efforts, but he has commanded us, that's the church, to evangelize and will hence sovereignly gather them in through our efforts. So we can see here, God is sending members of a local church out through the vehicle of persecution to Antioch with the gospel, and people are saved. Just as an aside, 
these, these things are easy to miss if you just glance over. Notice that God's eyes are on a specific place at a specific time. God had people in Antioch. They just didn't, they didn't know it yet. And just as God had 7,000 in Elijah's time that wouldn't bow to Baal, just as he had many in Corinth that would assist the Apostle Paul later in Acts 18, there are many in Antioch that he wants to raise up. So at the very foundation, we plant churches because God is on mission to raise up the local church that Jesus died to save. I trust that point is well taken by you. Number two, the second part of the answer. We plant churches so that the body of Christ will be strengthened. Now, I love this story because it gives us at least three examples of interchurch partnership happening. We'll look at those briefly. Look at the first with me, verse 22 through 26. Uh, we find out that the news of this new mission's work has reached the ears of the churches in Jerusalem. And so what do they do? What do they, what do they do when they find out that there's a new church in Antioch? Well, they send one of their very own, this man named Barnabas, to check things out, verse 22. See, the Jerusalem church, friends, has a, a sense of responsibility toward this new work that God is raising up in Antioch. And so, what do they do? They, they, on the one hand, want to be sure that this really is a legitimate work of God. But on the other hand, they want to encourage this work. So who better that to send into this new work than Barnabas, the son of encouragement, Luke says in Acts chapter 4, to encourage this church? Jerusalem is getting behind the work of church planting. They know they cannot reach this world alone. But they also know that there are members of the body of Christ there in Antioch living in the midst of a culture full of temptations. Sounds a lot like us today, doesn't it? So they send one of their very own workers to serve the new members of the body of Christ there. And he gets there. Barnabas can see that God's clearly at work. So he rejoices in his heart and with them, and he encourages. What else? He encourages them to remain steadfast and through Barnabas' work and presumably through his teaching, many more are added to the church. Secondly, second example of partnership. Barnabas, you can almost imagine this happening. Barnabas starts looking around at the work that God is doing in Antioch. And you can imagine him laying down in his bed one night and looking up at the ceiling in the dark and going, what is going on in Antioch? I need help. I cannot do this alone. Lord, is there someone out there that can help me? And then the Holy Spirit brings to mind, uh, yes, Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus has been hiding in the shadows, as it were, these last couple of years. He's been serving there in Tarsus, and he's been busy about his work, but you don't know much about him until this point. He's been out of the limelight for a little while. So Barnabas says, that's it. This church needs Saul's teaching. They need to be discipled. So he goes to Tarsus. A couple of days journey one way, a couple of days journey the other way, and he finds Saul and he brings him back, and together they tag team it. And for a whole year, these two brothers teach the brethren the word of the Lord, and the church grows. And we'll come back to that. Let's look ahead to verse 27. 
In those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit there would be a great famine over all the world. And as you read on, you find the disciples decide they're going to gather a collection for the church in Jerusalem. See, Jerusalem is again sending workers all around the known world of that time. See the partnership in Jerusalem's heart, the desire for partnership. Some of these people are prophets. And these prophets arrive in Antioch, and Agabus stands up and says, there's going to be a great famine in the world. Years around 43, 44 A.D. Well, what happened was, is during Claudius' reign, in the year 45, there was a a great, great storms that happened in Egypt, and the river was flooded there, and the grain harvest was destroyed that year. As a result, grain prices skyrocketed, and the world went into a famine of that time for the next couple of years, 46 to 48. Now, recall with me, this church in Antioch is a young church. It's easy for established churches to start looking inward during times of famine, spiritual or otherwise. Not so with this Antioch church. This church has one mission on its mind. That's reach people with the gospel. Now, at this point in Jerusalem, things aren't looking so good. The church there is becoming increasingly marginalized for their faith, and people are losing jobs, and there's poverty spreading throughout Jerusalem in the church. So what does this young church do? They gather whatever they can, and they give to help the church that has invested so much in their early years, invested so much into them in their early years. Jerusalem served Antioch. And now Antioch will serve Jerusalem. See, brothers and sisters, we plant churches not only to raise up the body that Christ died for, but also to grow the body of Christ that he died for. Established churches need to recognize that they are not solely responsible for the spiritual well-being of their community. Please hear that. You are not the sole church in this place. Jesus loves his church. He promised to build his church. And because he loves his church, he raises up individuals from within the church to start new works all over the place. This new church at Antioch and new churches everywhere provide a beautiful context for discipleship and spiritual growth and partnership and fervent evangelism. Why? Well, think about it. The gospel is so fresh on the hearts of these Christians. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and all the implications that follow are fresh on their hearts. They're excited The Christian faith is real and vital. And you know what? Things that matter get attended to. The Jerusalem church realized that God's mission was far bigger than them. So they sent one of their best. Barnabas realized, this work is far bigger than me. I need someone who's better than I am at this thing. I need someone who can teach these people, someone who's better equipped. 
Saul of Tarsus, Paul the Apostle. I'm so very grateful that the Lord is sending with me and our family a man named Aaron Bean. He couldn't be here today. He's actually down in Somerville, South Carolina, preaching uh, this evening. Uh, But Aaron and I are about as opposite as you can get personality-wise. You know how God oftentimes brings a man and a woman together and they get married and they're totally different? Well, God has done that with my fellow church planter. We became best friends about 10 years ago. And uh, just in almost every way, we're different except the fact that we're both goofy. That's the only only similarity. Um, But this man, he loves evangelism. He's a gifted evangelist. He is the one that gets me up out of my comfort zone. This guy loves being around. If, if he could live in a commune, I think he would. I am the opposite of that. I love people. But at the end of the day, I'm done with people. I want to go home. I want to be with my wife. I want to be alone. I mean, you may, that's, I'm confessing some stuff here, but that's just the reality. God sees where I lack. And so he gave me Aaron Bean to go with me. Now, I'm administratively gifted, and Aaron is the first to admit he's not. So the church needs an administrator, but he's relationally gifted. He makes up where I lack. Barnabas sees that. The church of Jerusalem sees that in a greater scale, on a greater scale. You may have heard of the phrase, churches that think globally act locally. Brothers and sisters, partnership between churches is vital if this world is going to be reached for Christ. This church in Jerusalem and Barnabas and Antioch recognize the power of partnership. So they take the second seat and they send out their very best. I wonder if we as established churches are willing to send our very best. Do we recognize that in our churches that God is doing things in individuals that need to be sent out? Do we recognize that there are churches all around and new works that God wants to raise up that just need a few good men, that just need a few good women to serve? We plant churches because God wants to build the body of Christ. Until, as Ephesians 4 says, we all attain to the unity. We all reach that place where we have a knowledge of Christ. We come to that place of mature manhood. We plant churches because God doesn't want you and I to be baby Christians. He wants us to grow up into him and not be moved aside by every wave and wind of doctrine. But these reasons, dear friend, are why partnership between churches is vital. This text is proof of it. And you know, I've seen it with my own eyes in sovereign grace. Some of the most successful, lasting church planting efforts are because churches see partnership as vital. Some of the most lasting efforts happen when churches send their best to serve. Let me give you one example, real briefly. There's a new church plant as of the last couple of years that planted out of Covenant Fellowship in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania. It's called Risen Hope. It's in uh, Drexel Hill, uh, Philadelphia area. This church, Covenant Fellowship, sent out a bunch of people, and they went to this neighborhood, and never did they imagine what would happen. Tim Shorey is the pastor there. He's a dear, dear brother. 
And you should see what God is doing among different races and ethnicities in Drexel Hill. And one of the things that I just so appreciated was that Covenant Fellowship sent people from the, be- the best of their stock, not the, not the worst, if, it, if you could say that. They sent a man named Andy Farmer, who is another dear brother. I could name a bunch of dear brothers in Sovereign Grace, but Andy is such a friend to me. And they sent him there for a whole year, more than a year, to serve this church, to build this church up. That's partnership, brother and sister. That church now is about 170 adults, every color you can think of, every ethnicity you can think of, worshiping the Lord together on Sunday mornings. It's a beautiful thing. So we plant churches because God wants to strengthen the body of Christ. The third and last part of this answer is we plant churches because God is on mission through the church to transform local communities. Let's look way back at the very first couple of verses. We see that Luke lists two primary groups of people that became believers. We've already mentioned who they were in verse 19. We see that there are Jews in that community. We also see in verse 20 that there are Hellenists. If you have your ESV Bible, your footnote probably says uh, something like Greek-speaking non-Jews. Now, we noted earlier there's a sizable Jewish population there in Antioch, but the rest of these converts are coming from Greeks and Romans and Indians and Egyptians and Arabs and Persians and everything else that you can think of. Now, you can imagine what happens when you start pulling together people from all different kinds of ethnicities and traditions and backgrounds to worship the Lord. Not to mention who all these people were in their former lives. Polytheists, Mosaic law keepers, former pleasure addicts of all kinds in Antioch. And you add all that beautiful culture and tradition and and language. You know what's going to happen? These are sanctified people, but there's going to be some stuff going on in that group of people. But see, after Paul and Barnabas arrive, they spend a year teaching the word to these new converts. And these new converts go from baby Christians to mature disciples of Jesus. Now, they've been teaching these people for a year or more that Jesus himself was the one that Matthew already alluded to that came into the world and took on human weakness and died for the sins of those brothers and sisters and rose again to life for them. Why? So that they would be able to bear one another's weaknesses. And look what happens. Look what happens in this this little group of people that's growing. People outside begin to to take notice. People outside begin to, to see things happening in this church. And we read in verse 26 this little phrase, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now, that term in the original is a funny word. It's a made-up word. It's taking the Greek, a Greek prefix and a Latin suffix and squishing them together and making a word called Christianus. Christianus is where Christos is where we get the Messiah term from. And Anus is just saying I-A-N. It's just making the word Christian. 
All right? This is a term that was not made up by the church believers, the brothers in the church there. This was a term that was given to them by the people in the community, probably Greeks, not Jews. Don't know Jew is going to give a deceived group of people, supposedly, a name that has Messiah in it. Okay? This is given by the community. And this is probably not a term of endearment. This is probably not a term that you say to someone that you love. This is probably a somewhat pejorative term given. But the word is significant that they would use this to define this body of Christians. See, brothers and sisters, this church had a unity that they could not find in the marketplace. They had a togetherness and a humility and an other-centeredness that you could not find in the marketplace in Antioch. This community had a vitality that was so palpable that the people in Antioch actually recognized them. They actually noted who they were. These weren't Jews. These weren't Gentiles. These weren't Daphne worshipers or Arabs or Indians. These were Christians. And they called them so. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. Daryl Bach in his commentary says, in Antioch, the testimony to Jesus as the Christ is so strong that community members are called Christians for the first time. This name is significant because it shows that it was the identification with Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, that people noticed. It also suggests that as a separate identity, that a separate identity is emerging for this group, which earlier was appealing to Jews only. It may well be that the mixed ethnicity is now forcing the issue of self-identification alongside the believer's messianic declarations about Jesus. Identity is matching up with their words, and they're given a brand new name, a name that changed the common lingo of the community. People notice And folks, because of this, people come to the Messiah and are saved. You know why we plant churches? We plant churches because a new gospel work in a community has the power to revitalize that community. It has the power to pull together people of all sorts of ethnicities and traditions and social classes and likes and dislikes. Why? Because the love of Christ is central to their fellowship. That's where their identity comes from, first and foremost. And when Jesus is exalted above all else, you know what that does for us? It doesn't make us afraid of what's different. It causes us to run to it and embrace it. And enjoy it and find out ways to enjoy it together. That's what the gospel does in a community of various people being brought together. In the city that we're going to in Wilmington, uh, racial division is, is a huge problem there, as it is in most 
cities, but in Wilmington in particular, uh, it's especially poignant. Now, the racism that we see there is not overt. Usually, it's not the case. But there's a sort of quiet undercurrent in Wilmington that's rooted in a long, dark history. There are several key events that have taken place in Wilmington over the last hundred plus years uh, that, you know what, if you wouldn't believe it if I told you, changed the shape of politics in this country at the turn of the 20th century. It was the birth of the Jim Crow laws that came out of these events in Wilmington in 1898. There's a long, dark history there, and only now is this being recognized and understood. Folks, Aaron and I are a couple of white guys. And we're going to Wilmington. And we're going not armed with illusions that a couple of white guys are going to destroy racism. That would be foolish. No. We are going armed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul would later write that in Christ Jesus, you who are far off at once have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Who is our peace? Jesus is. He is our peace who has made both one and has broken down in his flesh through his death the dividing wall of hostility between races. Folks, when we as a church, especially we as a predominantly white church, realized that Jesus himself entered into what was wholly different than he was, He clothed himself in human flesh, the God of the universe, for the first time and allowed himself to be born through the birth canal of a woman and for 30 some odd years was rejected and despised by people in his family and his neighbors and in the community to the point that he was put to death. When we recognize that this is who our Savior was, when we recognize that he gave his life so that he could raise up his future church and we see that Jesus did that for the likes of us. We don't run, folks, from what is different. We embrace it as Jesus did. Jesus sought to know people like us and we ought to, unlike him, I should say, and we ought to do the same thing We ought to seek to understand what we don't understand. We ought to ask questions. We ought to learn. We ought to build relationships with people that don't look like us. That's what the gospel allows us to do, brother and sister. And these ancient Christians in Antioch were given a new name identity because the people around them saw that they were different. These believers had an identity in Jesus. And they called them Christians, Christianos, because they were changing the social fabric of Antioch. Oh, Lord, would you do that in this church? Would you do that in our churches all around the country? Folks, do you want to bring the gospel to bear on the culture around you? Get behind church planting. Plant churches King's way. Plant more churches. I've heard about the churches you planted. Plant more churches. God is on mission through his church.
to transform local communities, to strengthen the body of Christ in cities all around the world for his glory. In closing, Jesus said that the fields are white with harvest. Every one of the cities in the United States are filled with people that don't know Jesus. There's a large mission field in this country. Do you know that in Richmond alone, it's a population of about 1.3 million people in the greater Richmond area, I couldn't believe it when I read this, 600,000 don't even belong to a church, don't go to church, are unchurched. 600,000. Do you know that in the greater Richmond area there are about 1,000 churches? Those 1,000 churches cannot reach that 600,000. We need more churches, folks. We need more faithful, gospel-preaching, gospel-centered, expositional-preaching churches who will bring God's word to bear on the community around them. Wilmington has about 117,000 people, much smaller than the greater Richmond area, but about half there as well don't belong to a local church. There are churches that are already in Wilmington doing a great job, but they're, they're not many. And so we just want to be one more local expression of Christ's body in Wilmington because the need is great there. Wilmington is number one in the nation for opioid abuse. Number one. There are 400 children in Wilmington in the foster system and about 100 foster families. It's a heavily taxed social system. We need more churches in Wilmington. Not just one, many. And so, I guess this is the point where I ask you, where I implore you, folks, churches that love the gospel, plant more churches. And if you can't go on the work of a church plant right now, then get behind the work of church planting. Invest time, resources, money in the work of church planting. Support people like Aaron and I that are planting churches all around the world. In Isan, Thailand, in Bolivia, and down in Wilmington, and hopefully here, hopefully here in Richmond. I hope that Kingsway will send people into missions, particularly in the work of church planting. And I think God's called me here today because there's people here that God is calling. I think you have missions weekends because God wants to raise up individuals from your midst that he can send out into the work of missions. So what I'd like to do for you is just pray for you as we end our time together. I want to pray specifically for this church. And I want to pray that God would just breathe on this church and that he would grow your congregation and that he would send out and create new congregations. There are people in Richmond and around the world that don't know Jesus, that happen to be a part of the body of Christ. They just don't know it yet. So will you get behind this work? Let's pray together. Our great missional God who has come into this world in the person of Jesus. 
to go into every city of the world through your church to save people, to make them a part of your family. We come to you, Lord, and we thank you. You are such a good God. You're so good to not leave us to ourselves, first of all. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he has given up his life for us so that we could be a part of your family. And I also thank you for the the many brothers and sisters that are in this world that love to speak of this Savior. Lord, I pray we all would become evangelists. I pray that we would all learn to do the work of an evangelist. But Lord, I just want to pray for this particular local expression of your body. I want to pray that you would make Kingsway Community Church an even more faithful church to mission than she is already. I pray that through her that you would plant churches. I pray that you would raise up men and women in this body that are called to plant churches. I pray, Lord, that you would make them faithful, Lord, to respond to this call. But Lord, I also pray that you would raise up people in Kingsway to support the work of church planting. I pray that you would put it in their hearts to give and give freely to the things that you're doing in this world. Oh, Lord, not everyone is called to go, but everyone is called to be involved in the work of missions in some fashion. I pray that you would raise up those individuals. And I just ask that you would, oh, Lord, would you give in King's way a longing to be like the church in Antioch, to be like the church in Jerusalem, who because of their faithfulness, though they had few, you multiplied their work and you started a a movement all throughout the world. And we sit here today because of the faithfulness of Jerusalem and Antioch and those churches there. I pray that you would do that here. And Lord, I I have so much joy knowing that you are big enough to do this work. I have so much joy knowing that you are able I pray you do it in Christ's name.